Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Biology is no longer destiny. Our DNA doesn't determine our health as once believed. According to the new science of epigenetics, the majority of our genes are fluid and dynamic, and their expression is shaped by what we think and what we do. Joining me today to discuss how we can influence our genes by the choices we make every day is Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, a world-renowned pioneer in integrative medicine. Dr. Pelletier is a clinical professor of medicine at UCSF School of Medicine and former clinical professor of medicine at the Stanford School of Medicine. He is a peer reviewer for several medical journals and has appeared on media outlets to discuss his research. Dr. Pelletier has authored numerous books, including his latest, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. Welcome, Dr. Pelletier. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for your invitation. Looking forward to talking with you. Dr. Many people are concerned about their family history when it comes to health, and they believe that they're stuck with whatever diseases plague their loved ones. But new science shows that we have a profound influence over our health by the choices we make every day. Why is this the case? Well, uh, it's a common misconception, I think, among uh, the general population, but even among health professionals, that the gene is like a hard drive in a computer, and in various set of directions, instructions on everything from hair color to eyes to weight to diseases you will get, how long you will live, etc. And it's simply not accurate. Um, what we do know in the last seven or eight years with epigenetics uh, research is that probably five to 10% of what we see as adult health, adult longevity, uh, intelligence, uh, you know, pres- preservation of cognitive function, etc., cetera, uh, is due to, to genes that are monogenic or fully penetrant. In other words, they're really pushed and manifest themselves genetically. The other 90% of everything we experience from the age of about nine months through adulthood is determined by how we influence our genes, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And that's so important, doctor. Think about that. 90 to 95% we control. And I I get excited every time I hear that because it, it, it just gives you this freedom that you don't feel like you have a sentence. You know, I come from a family, my father had lung cancer, my sister had lung cancer, my mother had heart disease. So these would be the things that most people write off and say, well, those are my genes and that's pretty much my future. But what you're explaining to us is so exciting because it doesn't have to be that way. That's correct. And you've just articulated it better than I could is no matter what you're, you you have a push. So all of us have a push. Our genes are predisposing us to heart disease or cancer or irritable bowel syndrome or a a whole host of other conditions. But that's all it is. It's a push. It does not mean it becomes manifest. And so what we're really talking about in epigenetics, epigenetics, epi means above, around the gene. And around the gene, there is literally a molecular coding, has a terribly long name, single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And there are like little rheostats. We turn them up or we turn them down. And the turning it up and turning it down is dependent on diet, stress, 
beliefs, uh, the environment, uh, our physical environment, psychosocial environment. So what we're really talking about is that we can influence, even if we're pushed in a particular direction, we can influence that positively if we want to, or we can slow it down or even eliminate it uh, from our genetic uh, inheritance. It is not deterministic. Is that what is meant when we hear about flipping the switch on or off biochemical markers? Correct. And it's uh, the on-off is a little, it's, it's a little simple, but it's more like a rheostat um, where you have a light in a room and you can turn it up very bright or you can turn it down very dim if you want to have a dinner party or something. So it, our, our genes really are acting more like a rheostat rather than on and off. They're never all off. They're never silent, what they would call a silent gene, and they're never fully expressed uh, except in rare disease again that show up within the first six to nine months. If you have a monogenic or what they call a fully penetrant genetic condition, it will show up within the first six to nine months of life. After that, um, it really is dependent on, again, this rheostat-like function through, through everything we do day in and day out will determine whether that shows up or is expressed or whether it is suppressed. Doctor, what do you feel is the best use of today's epigenetic research? Well, I think the, to me, the most important thing to convey to, to anyone is what we're talking about, which is you are not doomed by your genes, nor are you guaranteed a long life expectancy. So someone might say, well, my parents lived into their 90s, so I can eat and drink and do whatever I want. That's not the case. Um, you know, I, I think one of the places where we assume that genetics has the greatest influence on us is our longevity, how long we're going to live. And even that turns out to be false. There's actually a study that came out that the company Ancestry, which says was Ancestry.com, teamed up with a group of genetics researchers, and they published this study in Genetics, which is the main uh, gene research journal. What they did is they took all of the people who have reported their data into Ancestry.com, and they created a 400 million person database. Now, that's staggering. Most research is based on a few hundred or a few thousand people. This is 400 million database of parents, I'm sorry, grandparents, parents, and children. What they wanted to see is did the life expectancy or the age of death of grandparents, parents affect the children, the grandchildren, or they looked at lifestyle factors like diet, exercise, physical fitness. Did those predict better the age of the uh, grandchild? And it turned out overwhelmingly that the lifestyle factors predicted longevity, not the genetic inheritance from their parents or grandparents. So I think that's a very dramatic instance of the fact that we assume and, and, and very often that, you know, the life expectancy is governed by our genes. It is even governed there, which I think is fascinating. So the best application of epigenetics is to relieve us, if you will, from the burden of feeling either that we have a guarantee, which we don't, or we have a vulnerability, which we don't. It is our choice, our selection, our involvement that makes the difference. Doctor, there's so much research that is showing the importance of lifestyle choices. Do you think that traditional medical practitioners are catching up with this information? Are they now seeing the connection between the way we live and eat with our overall health? <laughs> That's quite a challenging question. Mm -hmm. I my, my opinion is yes, that medicine is changing. Uh, and I think what we see, we see integrative medicine, personalized medicine, uh, functional medicine. And, and those three phrases are all kind of descriptions or attempts to describe this integration of lifestyle with conventional medicine. Conventional medicine is basically pharmaceuticals and surgery, diagnosis of disease. That, that's the domain of medicine. But around that is then the domain of health, which is much larger. Most of us are healthier than sick. Most of us are healthier for most of our lives than not not well. Uh, so what we're really looking at is what is the larger picture for people day in and day out 
year over year in terms of influencing their lives. So what the new emphasis now is more on uh, bio, what are called biomarkers or basically biological indicators of your state of health. So all of us are familiar with cholesterol. I think everyone knows their total cholesterol at this point. That's a biomarker. If it's too high, it means a problem. If it's too low, it also means a problem. But if you had feedback, if you knew what your biomarker was and was it within an optimal range, and we can determine that for hundreds of bodily functions that are governed by genetics, then we can optimize those. We can bring those within range through all of the various lifestyle factors we've just been talking about. When you bring them within range, you optimize your mental faculties, your physical ability, your emotional, spiritual direction in life. And that, to me, is the, is the more interesting challenge uh, for the future. And medicine is beginning to recognize that. You find Scripps Institute and the Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, all of them now have lifestyle programs wrapped around the care of diseases, including cancer, heart disease, irritable bowel. So we're seeing even the major medical institutions are moving in this direction. Doctor, you say that there are at least seven biological pathways that determine which major diseases or states of health a person will potentially experience. What are they and how can we learn this information? Right. Uh, This is conventional uh, biochemistry. Uh, There are really seven biochemical pathways in the body and these are all governed by a relatively small set of genes. So that this is how the genes, when I said the genes express themselves, so when the gene turns on or turns off or goes dormant, each of these pathways are in turn affected. So just quickly, just to rattle through them, and we can go back to any one of them, is methylation. And methylation is like punctuation. So it says, here's the genetic code, here's a period. That's the end of that statement. Uh, There's inflammation. We're all familiar with inflammation. We think it's a risk for heart disease. But on the positive side, it also is when we get a minor cut. That's inflammation. So we need inflammation. It's not bad. I mean, there are so many diets now that promise you to eliminate inflammation. Well, that's nice, but it's misguided. We need a certain amount of inflammation. The other third one is oxidative stress. And so we all, whenever metabolism occurs in the presence of oxygen, we get byproducts. And if it's excessive under stress, then we get excessive byproducts, and that's damaging. A fourth is detoxification. So the body is continually purging ourselves biochemically and ridding ourselves of cancer cells. All of us have cancer cells at any given point in time. Our immune system surveils it, eliminates them, etc. Then immunity is the fifth. And immunity is simply how does your body know self from not self? Who are you versus the bacteria, the viruses, the other kinds of pathogens that are in our environment? And the sixth is lipid metabolism. So it's really how well do you digest fats? And we always hear about uh, the no-fat diet. We've got to eliminate fats. That's simply false. There are people that can consume very high-fat diets. They have a high, highly expressed uh, gene for lipid metabolism. They can consume fats all day long, and it doesn't harm them. So for them to go on a low-fat diet doesn't make any sense. In fact, it may even create certain hormonal deficiencies. And the last is mineral metabolism. So mineral metabolism is just that. It's all the trace elements the zinc, the copper, all of the various kinds of uh, sub-fractions within foods that, on which we depend for our health. So those are the seven pathways, and each of them are influenced by genes, and the genes are influenced, again, by what we do in our, our lifestyles. From what you've described, to me, it sounds like, with all of the studies and, and what we know about genetics, it, it really sounds like we're moving away from the one-size-fits-all approach to wellness and, and really getting specific tailoring things to a person's composition. Completely agree. <clears throat> and again, you've just described it perfectly. Um, the Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, um, he's called it precision medicine. 
and, or personalized medicine. And what it means is that everything we tend to do in healthcare and medicine is one size fits all. So one diet should fit everyone. One prescription should fit everyone. One particular drug is good for every conceivable kind of disease. And again, that's just not accurate. So what the epigenetics allows us to do is there are tests, there are assays for genes and blood, and soon they'll be for the biome or the intestinal tract that tell us who we are. So if someone, you know, we're, we're barraged by conflicting information on diet, ketogenic diets, grapefruit juice diets, high fat, low fat, Mediterranean, you name it, everyone has a dietary miracle. Well, the problem is that unless we know who we are, how do we know what a good fit is? And there are now genetic tests that can get down to very specific information. They can literally tell you, eat uh, almonds, not walnuts, or vice versa, eat walnuts, not almonds, mm -hmm. because genetically you're predisposed to be able to digest one better than the other. So this world of epigenetics opens up personalized medicine and it's taking pharmacology, it's taking foods, uh, exercise, stress management, environmental exposures down to the level of what do you as an individual really need rather than a general guideline. It's like if you uh, buy a, a dress or a suit. I mean, one is buying it, the second is the tailoring. So we're talking about tailoring these guidelines to individual use. Doctor, do you think we'll get specific even in something like cancer care instead of getting a, a routine chemo for a particular type of cancer? Do you think that our drugs will get so specific and tailored to an individual? That's already happening. I mean, the cancer chemotherapy is one of the areas, again, you know, what we're talking about, too, is two different uses of the same technology. So one use of uh, genetic testing and epigenetics is, again, with treatment of disease, the specificity of chemotherapy or even radiation or immunotherapy using your body's own immune system that's on an enhanced level or healthy biomarkers. And the healthy biomarkers is really what my book is about looking at what can we do to maintain optimal health. But if we look at for a minute in the cancer area, the typing of chemotherapy for certain particular kinds of cancers is really a breakthrough area. And we will definitely see more of that. For instance, we know now that the BRCA1, BRCA2 for women predisposes to breast cancer. Now, right now, the conventional treatment is unilateral or bilateral mastectomy. Well, that's not the only option that's available to women, but at least we have a specificity, a gene that tells us with a high or less degree of likelihood that there's a push toward uh, a particular disease. That kind of genetic markers for disease and secondarily genetic markers for the right kind of chemotherapeutic agent or immunological agent is definitely uh, an area of, of growth and research. Doctor, the average person visits his or her physician for a checkup or for routine testing or, or even medical care, and they're given pretty standard treatments on average. For someone who's listening to this conversation and says, you know, I really want to take advantage of what's happening in science and I want to get more tailored care, but the doctor isn't doing that. How can the person find out this information and what type of physician should he or she be visiting? That's a great question. There is a program uh, at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. It was started by a very good friend, longtime colleague, Andrew Weil, a uh, well-known author, and it's called the Center for Integrative Medicine. And they've trained about 1,600 physicians who are all over the United States. And all of them have been trained in exactly what we're talking about. They spend two years, they all have conventional medical training and they've all usually been out in practice for a number of years and they go back to school for a two-year postdoctoral program in which they learn herbal medicine, uh, Ayurveda, osteo osteopathy and chiropractic, mind-body medicine techniques. So they learn these other techniques and how to integrate them into conventional medicine. So again, if you go to the University of Arizona School of Medicine, Center for Integrative Medicine, there's a roster of physicians 
physicians all over the United States that are practicing in the way we're talking about. The other is there's the uh, functional medicine group. I believe it's called the Society for Functional Medicine. Again, physicians who practice using predominantly nutrition, stress management techniques, and other interventions for for uh, more integrated care. Um, the last thing I think is that you're right that when you go and you get a blood test in an annual physical or any kind of physical, you probably get 12 to 15 blood markers back, most of which honestly it's quite meaningless unless it's extremely high or extremely low and then you pay attention to it. What you really need to get are some of the more what they call advanced biometrics. So there are blood tests from some companies that now look will look at a hundred or more subfractions that really tell you the state of your health. And you can access those without going to a doctor, without a prescription. You can get them online and you can have their self-administered and they're usually self-explanatory. They usually will be coupled with a coaching session. So when you get your information back, you can sign up to then work with a coach to more completely understand what your blood biomarkers mean and what the genetics are that have led to those blood biomarkers and how you can influence them. So this is all something that we're not talking about a theoretical care five years down the road. We're talking about you have to do a little shopping and you have to be careful. Um, I think uh, there are about mm, 12 or 15 companies now that offer uh, genetic testing. I think the most important thing to remember, if you do get genetic testing, 23andMe is an obvious one, uh, that it's simply a piece of information. It's not deterministic. If it says you have a 40% likelihood of disease X, what that means is you have the same markers as 40% of the people who developed that disease. What it doesn't tell you is that there's 60% of the people with the same markers who don't. And how do you avoid developing that disease if you have that marker? So if you get a genetic test, just remember, it's just one point of information. It's not a sentence. It's not pointing the bone. Doctor, in your book, you quote functional medicine pioneer, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who stated that disease is a delusion. And, and I think that's such an interesting statement. What does that mean, that disease is a delusion? Well, uh, Dr. Bland is, I think, brilliant. Um, he's a biochemist and really develop this whole idea of functional medicine. And it simply means that disease is the end product, at least in his original research, of misplaced biochemistry. So eating high fat or high sugar or high red meat diets for a while does not show up as disease. But if you continually consume that kind of diet, if you will, the result is a disease. But the disease is an illusion in the sense of it's not inevitable. And if you made changes along the way biochemically in your body, you would not have to manifest that disease. And uh, so that's one dimension of the delusion of disease. The other part that he means, and I think he's very, very good about this, is that once a person is given a diagnosis, they tend to become the disease. They're not a person anymore, they're heart failure or they are uh, osteocarcinoma. You know, they're, they're a disease entity rather than a person who has a disease. Uh, and uh, Plato uh, actually uh, said it was more important to know what person has a disease than what disease a person has. And, I, and that's becoming very true. And so in that sense, the diagnosis or the label of a condition is an illusion. It's a guess. It's, it's something that you use to get compensation and to re, you create a diagnosis for insurance purposes. It does not reduce the person to that disease. That's a dangerous illusion or delusion. And so I, I very much are, am in agreement with, uh, with Dr. Bland's observations. The book is Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. If you would like to get more information about Dr. Pelletier and his work, you can visit drpelletier.com. That's D-R, drpelletier.com. Doctor, in our final moments, for someone who's my age, middle age, and they've been living a certain lifestyle and they're now 40, 50, 60 years old, is it ever too late to make the changes that can impact our future, our health and wellness at the genetic level? I'm so glad you asked that. No, it is never too late. And I mean that quite literally. Um, someone who's in their 70s, 80s, or even 90s can make really major, significant changes in their life that affect these biochemical pathways we just talked about that can have the ex the effect of extending their life expectancy, preserving their mental faculties. Well, there was a study. Um, it came from NASA. 
And uh, one of the astronauts who has spent the longest duration spaceflight of one year uh, returned to Earth. And he has a twin brother who's also an astronaut. And his twin brother is actually married to Gabby Giffords, who's a U.S. House of Representatives uh, woman who was shot. that he came back to Earth and they had his genetics and they had his twin brother's genetics. What they found is that in less than one year in space, 7% of his genetic expression has changed. Now, he's someone that's in his late 50s, uh, so you're talking, this is the kind of person you're talking about. Can it change? Yes. Did it change? Yes. And 7% may or may not sound like a lot. But the difference between us and chimpanzees is a less than 1% difference in genetic expression. So his body, his genetic expression underwent an enormous change. And now six months later, they followed up uh, with with him. They published another study and they found that 4% of his genes have remained uh, changed. Uh, Two things. One, it means we can change genes at any stage of our life any age at any time and secondly what those changes mean we have yet to find out dr peltier thank you so much for being here with us this information it's so exciting because it gives us so much power over the way we live our life the way we age and uh, as you said it's never too late so i think it's time that we all get going with it so thank you for being here (laughs) thank you very much this is conversations with joan stay with us we'll be right back How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Soul by Rain is produced from various seed flowers. Its primary ingredients hail from the black cumin seed and the black raspberry seed. These two combine to provide a powerful antioxidant barrier against the devastating effects of stress. Soul by Rain has been hailed as one of the most important anti-aging antioxidants ever discovered. Soul is an anti-inflammatory and it helps prevent and repair radical damages for a healthier heart. Get your soul by calling your rain partner, Elmina Ziza, at 973-722-1154. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. Did you know that your heart is a muscle too? I'm Christina Nemec, co-founder of PATH Health Consultants. Here at PATH, we focus on using lifestyle to prevent and manage health risks. We're a workplace wellness firm dedicated to improving the bottom line of the organizations we work with. Our innovative, personalized approach to wellness supports employees as they adopt and sustain behaviors that improve or maintain their health. In addition, we offer a variety of health seminars and workshops to companies interested in educating and supporting their employees in a group setting. Just like you work out your biceps, triceps, and glutes, you also need to exercise your heart. To get the most heart health benefit from exercise, you should keep your heart rate between 50 and 85% of your maximum. To find your maximum heart rate, just subtract your age from 220. Any aerobic exercise can strengthen your heart and improve your cardiovascular function. You could try hiking, biking, swimming, dancing, or climbing the stairs. You should aim to get at least 150 minutes of aerobic exercise a week. If you'd like more information on heart health or on workplace wellness, please contact us at pathhealthllc.com. That's pathhealthllc.com. There is more than one way to achieve a healthy mind, body, and spirit. In the world of medicine, there are three common approaches. Hi, I'm Ed Gaelic, a life and health insurance broker and founder of PSI Consultants, located in Glenrock, New Jersey. We have specialized in personal insurance and company-sponsored health benefits since 1985. 
Conventional medicine is an evidence-based practice for diagnosing and treating disease. Providers of this type of care are highly trained and subject to strict federal guidelines and regulations. Conventional medicine is readily accepted by all health insurance companies. Alternative medicine is built on the philosophy that the body has a natural ability to heal itself. This field includes nutrition, homeopathy, massage therapy, acupuncture, and even yoga. Alternative medicine is often based on anecdotal evidence and may not be recognized as medically necessary by some health insurance companies. Complementary medicine is alternative therapies used in conjunction with conventional treatments such as a special diet. All approaches must be administered correctly and properly monitored by a professional in order to be safe and effective. It is extremely important for you to have honest discussions with all of your physicians and practitioners. They need to be aware of all treatments, conventional and alternative, you are receiving so that each has a complete picture of you and your health. If not, you could experience unintended consequences. To contact us and learn more, please visit our website, psi-consultants.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. In 2003, two days before Christmas, and at 26 years old, today's guest Chris Wark was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. He had surgery to remove a golf-sized ball tumor and a third of his colon. But after surgery, instead of traditional chemotherapy, Chris decided to radically change his diet and lifestyle in order to promote health and healing. Chris is an author, speaker, and health coach who is featured in the award-winning documentary film, The C Word. He is the author of Chris Beat Cancer, A Comprehensive Plan for Healing Naturally. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joan. I'm so glad to be with you. So, Chris, it is really a pleasure to have you here because in 2003, when you were 26 years old, you heard the words that we all dread hearing, and those words were, you have cancer. What was going through your mind when you received that diagnosis? Well, you know, like any cancer patient, it was a huge shock. I uh, didn't expect it at all. I'd been having abdominal pain, and I thought maybe it was an ulcer. But after a series of tests and a colonoscopy, they found a golf ball-sized tumor in my colon. They sent it to the lab and uh, called me with the results and said, you have colon cancer. What treatment did they recommend? At that time, they didn't know what stage it was, and they, they were thinking it was stage two. Mm-hmm. And what they said to me was, we got to get you into surgery right away. we got to get this thing out of you before it spreads and kills you. And so immediately there was all this fear surrounding my diagnosis and in my life. And this is what happens to most cancer patients. As soon as they get a diagnosis, they're uh, rushed into treatment that they don't understand out of fear. And so I was a very typical cancer patient at that time. And I was like, okay, whatever you say, like, I guess I got to have surgery, you know? And, and so they wanted to get me into surgery like within a day or two. I mean, that's how fast the cancer train moves. And so it's a bit of a whirlwind after being diagnosed. So I was able to postpone the surgery because it was two days before Christmas when I was finally diagnosed. And I didn't want to be in the hospital on Christmas because that's like extra depressing. Uh, We postponed it about a week to December 30th. And uh, I went in, they took out a third of my large intestine, which is where the tumor was located. And then uh, in the middle of surgery, they realized it had spread to the surrounding lymph nodes. So they took out a bunch of lymph nodes as well, and that restaged me to stage 3C. So why did you opt out of traditional treatment? Well, it's <laughs> a great question. I had no knowledge. What I had were instincts and intuition. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a series of things that happened uh, along the way that really got me on a different path. The first two things happened in the hospital, and one of them was the very first meal that they served me after taking out a third of my large intestines was a sloppy joe, which, as you know, the sloppy joe is like just the best example of like horrible cafeteria food. 
And yet, here they are plopping down this tray in front of me. Uh, I'm in a hospital bed <laughs> after cancer surgery with the sloppy Joe on it. So, you know, I was just, I just remember thinking, like, well, I don't understand. Like, why are they serving this to like sick people? This is awful. And red meat is classified by the World Health Organization as a group two carcinogen, which means there's strong evidence that red meat consumption causes colon cancer. Right. So they're, they're giving me the food that <laughs> likely caused or contributed to my cancer uh, directly after they cut the cancer out. <laughs> okay, so the other thing that happened in the hospital was the day they told me I could go home, the surgeon came in to check on me one final time, and we were talking about, you know, the next steps. And I asked him, are there any foods I need to avoid? Because instinctively, I just didn't want to eat something that would, like, you know, mess up the surgery or you know, affect my digestive system. And I mean, literally, they had just sewn my guts back together, right? right. I, I asked him and he said, um, no, uh, just don't lift anything heavier than a beer. So he basically gave me permission to, to go home and eat whatever I wanted. Your diet doesn't matter, right? That's exactly what he was saying in so many words. No, no, doesn't matter what you eat. Obviously, it didn't even matter if you drink a beer. You know, it's just don't strain yourself. And so I'm starting to, you know, kind of, piece these clues together and that the medical industry has no regard for health and healthy living and nutrition. Like I knew what health food was. I wasn't eating a healthy diet. I was eating a standard American diet, a Western diet, tons of meat and dairy, tons of processed food, junk food, fast food and the like. So I go home, I'm, I'm on the couch recovering from surgery uh, and uh, trying to get off the pain medicine and I was ready to, you know, kind of try to get back to my life. And during that time, I was also thinking about, by the way, they had told me I needed nine to 12 months of chemotherapy, that that was the next step for me. So I was thinking about that and um, about what it would be like to be a cancer patient. I was envisioning myself as a chemo patient, no, you know, bald, emaciated. I was already practically emaciated anyway. I was very thin. I'd lost a ton of weight. I was already thin to begin with. And I was just, you know, skin and bones. And I just thought, this is, this is not what I need to be doing. I'm not strong enough to get through those treatments. And so I prayed and I just said, God, if there's another way besides chemotherapy, please show me. You know, I just had this deep concern, right? Deep reservations. My gut, my instincts, my intuition, whatever you want to call it, was saying, like, don't do this. This is not what you need to be doing. This is not right for you. So I prayed and I said, help. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, there's something else. Show me. And two days later, I got a book. And this book came. It showed up on my doorstep. It was mailed from a man, a friend of my dad's who lives in Alaska. And I start reading this book. And the guy who wrote it had was diagnosed with colon cancer, and he had healed it with nutrition. Mm -hmm. Didn't have surgery or chemo or anything. I, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that this was possible. And but I but I did believe it. Right? I was like, this is amazing. This is an answer to my prayer. Like, and and that book got me on a journey. Uh, it, it kind of just opened my eyes to the fact that cancer, most cancers, are caused by our diet, lifestyle, and environment. So I realized, whoa, hold on, maybe the way I'm living is killing me. And if it is, then that's actually good news. If the way I'm living is killing me, then what would happen if I radically changed my entire life, changed my diet, changed my attitude, changed my work environment, addressed the stress in my life, removed all the toxic chemicals from my home, like what would happen? Maybe my body can heal this. My body created it. Maybe my body can heal it, but it's not healing right now. So I know there are, there's some interference, right? There's mm -hmm. some obstacles to healing that I need to uncover. So overnight I made a decision. This, one, this is what I've got to do. I'm doing it. I prayed. I asked for something. This showed up. It makes so much sense to me. And I'm going to change my whole life. How confident were you in that decision? Because I'm assuming your doctor probably thought you were crazy for doing this. So how does somebody who makes a decision that goes against conventional wisdom, how does that person find the strength to stand his or her ground? That's such a good question. So it was a journey of emotional highs and lows. And so I was so excited. All I needed was one story. 
right? I, that's what, all I had in the beginning. One guy's story, and it was enough. And I was like, this is it. I prayed to ask for something. This showed up. I believe this healing is possible now. And now I understand that maybe there's a path to health. Now, I, I wasn't fully confident, obviously, but I had enough faith and I had enough of a spark from this person's story to say, if, if this worked for him, we're both humans. If his human body can heal, maybe my human body can heal. So I was, you know, extremely excited and uh, full of faith and enthusiasm. And I immediately called my wife and I'm like, I got this book. This is amazing. Like, we need to get a juicer and I'm going to I'm going to get on this raw food diet. And she was like, what are you like? What are you talking? What? Right, right. <laughs> You're still doing chemo, right? And I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. I don't I don't think I want to do chemo. I mean, so then, you know, we kind of get off the phone and it didn't the conversation didn't go well. And I very shortly after other family members start to call and they're saying, Chris, we, you know, we heard you're thinking about not doing chemo and you, you need to understand how serious this is. You need to do exactly what the doctor says. You know, don't you think if there was something better, they would know about it? And, you know, by the way, I know someone who tried alternative therapies and they died. And then here comes the fear again. And my confidence starts to sink. I, I have this revelation. I felt like this is what I need to do, but I had very little support. And everybody's telling me, you got to go, you got to do what the doctor says. So in order to appease the, the pressure around me, I, you know, reluctantly agreed to go see the oncologist. And I go to his office and he basically gives me the standard pitch. Well, you're a young adult with colon cancer. It's very aggressive in young adults. You've got to do treatment. You've got about a 60% chance of living five years with treatment. And I'm like, 60%, that seems kind of low, right? That's like close to 50%, which is like, well, that's like the coin toss. And I uh, said, well, uh, what about the raw food diet? Because I'd been on it for one week. He said, no, you can't do that. It'll fight the chemo. Uh, and I'm like, well, uh, are there any alternative therapies available? And he said, no, if you don't do chemotherapy, you're insane. And at that point, his demeanor changed and he became very arrogant and condescending, started talking down to me and it was it was pulling all of the arrows in his quiver. Right. And like firing them at me. I, everything he could think of to convince me I had to do chemo or I was going to die. And when when our meeting ended, I got up as if I had been brainwashed and walked out the door to the desk and made an appointment to get a port put in which was the next step before chemotherapy. And then my wife and I walked to her car and sat in her car and we held hands and just cried. And I, I choked out a prayer and I was at, you know, one of the lowest emotional points of the whole journey. He had effectively just shattered my faith and confidence. So Chris, you decided to opt out of the treatment and you talked about the dietary changes that you made. What else did you change in your life? I changed everything. I basically took a step back and said, okay, if my hypothesis is the way I'm living is killing me, <laughs> I don't know wh what I'm doing wrong, but I have a pretty long list of things that all may be contributing. We all have an immune system. <laughs> and your immune system, when it's working properly, identifies and eliminates cancer cells before they can start reproducing and create a lesion, lump, bump, a tumor. But over a period of time, if you are exposed to a variety of health-destroying factors in life, then eventually systems in your body begin to break down. And eventually what happens is your body becomes a place where cancer can thrive. What I decided to do was just turn my life upside down and do everything in my power to promote health and healing in my body. Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story and, and what you learned. If our listeners would like to get more information, you can get a copy of Chris's new book, Chris Beat Cancer, A Comprehensive Plan for Healing Naturally, and you can visit his website, chrisbeatcancer.com. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When was the last time you cleaned out your closet? Hi, I'm Sonica Guadara, certified personal fashion stylist and founder of Style by Sonica. It can be difficult to let go of pretty things that once made your heart flutter or that sweater a relative knit for you. Or what about those pair of jeans you keep saying you'll fit into once you lose the weight? Justifying to keep pieces you no longer need, especially the ones that you spent hard-earned money, can be a daunting task. But when your closet is full to capacity, 
a closet edit is a must, especially if you are constantly saying that you have nothing to wear with a closet full of clothes. Once you have decided it's time to edit your closet, take in mind the following key factors when doing the edit. Does the garment fit? Have I worn this in the last year? Will I wear it again? Is this in style? Would I buy this today? And last but not least, do I feel confident when wearing this? If you say no to any of the things above, it's time to let go, donate, sell, or toss. If you want to learn more about me and personal styling, visit me at stylebysonica.com. One of the most common questions buyers have when purchasing their first home is whether or not they should make a large down payment. With the large number of mortgage programs available that allow buyers to purchase homes with down payments for as low as 3.5%, it's important to know your options and the effects of each in order to make an educated decision. Hi, my name is Danielle Grossoff from Experience Real Estate with Keller Williams Realty, here to discuss what you should consider when deciding how much you want to put down when purchasing your home. I'm sure we can all agree that having to come out of pocket a bit less when purchasing a home certainly does sound like the more desirable decision. However, if you choose to put less than 20% down, you'll have to pay private mortgage insurance. PMI is essentially a monthly fee rolled into your mortgage payment that is required for all conforming, conventional loans that have down payments of less than 20%. Now, the good news is that the cost of PMI isn't earth-shattering at all, and it actually varies based on your loan-to-value ratio. The difference in your monthly payment on a $200,000 home, should you put 5% instead of 20%, would be about $104 per month. However, you'd also get to expedite the purchase of your first home and or investment property while keeping more of your finances liquid to use for other expenses. Plus, once you do have 20% of your home paid off, you can always refinance into a conventional and would no longer have to pay the PMI. If you have further questions about real estate, please visit danielle-grosso.com. Changing I need to I deserve. Hi, my name is Richard Perro. I am a transformational life coach, speaker, and author. Many of my clients often come to me with the same complaint, that they need more money, or they need a better job, or they need a better relationship. They come feeling frustrated and overwhelmed and believe that by demonstrating this need to me, I'm going to whip out a magic wand and their lives are going to change overnight. The first question I ask them is, do you think you really deserve to have better, or do you just need better? After a minute of looking at their confused faces, I ask them, what are you giving to deserve more? It is better to give than to receive is not just a biblical axiom that talks about our generous nature. No, it is how the law of attraction works. The farmer does not stand on his land and say, I need a crop to feed my family. The farmer knows that he must first toil in the soil before the soil will return the crop. We have to do the work before to deserve the result that follows. If you want to make more money, you may have to go back to school and invest in yourself. When you receive a degree, you will deserve more money. When we deserve something, we keep deserving it. We occupy the space of someone who has earned the position, and we are less likely to lose what we have justly earned. We live in a world that is governed by natural laws. Deserving something is always the result of working to achieve something. So if you feel you need something, make sure you deserve it. If you would like to learn more about Blissful Living, please contact me at richardperro.com. life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to talk about Mean Moms. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joan. Nice to be here. So, Amy, Mean Mom is a term that's used quite frequently today, and it's used to describe a person who is doing probably the most difficult job there is, raising children. So what do you believe people mean when they say she's a mean mom? You know, this is a phrase that 
as a mom myself, I've even actually referred to myself. Oh, sometimes I say, oh, I'm a mean mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've started to think about it as I hear other mothers use it in reference to themselves or even hear kids use it in reference to their moms. And it's often, you know, used when in the eyes of a child who's involved, he or she doesn't like the immediate consequences that that mother is taking. So for example, you're a mean mom, you're taking my phone at bedtime, or you're being such a mean mom because you're not letting me stay out past curfew. And so this is when that term comes up, and I hear it more and more often these days, and it's sad because they're not being mean. Right. We're doing our job. Right. So my revelation about this, Joan, is that, you know, we're not being mean. So why are we even jokingly calling ourselves mean moms? You know, what we're really looking to do is implement certain rules like curfews or set certain boundaries with all these phones and screens, right? We're really actually looking to safeguard our children. Somehow, though, it's become okay to refer to ourselves as mean moms when we take these types of action. And, um, you know, there's a very distinct difference between being mean and caring for someone we love like our children, even if at that moment our child dislikes our actions. So, Amy, what do you recommend moms do when they hear this, or worse, when we think it? Well, you know, my challenge is this. Let's change the phrase, ladies, right? change our perspective on this term. Instead of calling ourselves or allowing our children to call ourselves mean mom, let's use different adjectives, more specific ones, and call us what we are. Like how about caring mom or conscientious, thoughtful mom, responsible mom. So here's to making a subtle but important change in our own mentality. Because let's remember, ladies, it takes a lot of courage to raise our children and stand up for what we know is healthy and safe for them. So kudos to each mom who's strong and and is being caring, conscientious, responsible, and thoughtful. Well, Amy, I'm going to add my own. I like super mom. I love that because you know what, <laughs> we are. We are super moms. And in this day and age of action figures and, you know, all of these exciting superheroes, We should call ourselves Supermom. I love that. I completely agree with that. That would be perfect. So, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic, or if you'd like to learn more about Amy and her work, you can visit her website, createclarity.net. And as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.